tonight. Open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, and we're going to just cover verses 1 through 12 this evening. And uh, it's guidance for the young. Guidance for the young. In Proverbs chapters 3, 4, and 5, we have the path of wisdom. Verses 1 through 22 tell us that it's a pleasant path. Verses 1 through 4 tell us that the law is to be loved and admired. And the key verses in this chapter of chapter 3 are verses 5 and 6. It's a promise that God's people have often claimed as they've sought the Lord's direction for their lives. And this promise has never failed them. If they've observed the conditions that God has laid down in verses 1 through 12, this promise has never failed them. And God keeps His promises when we obey His teachings because our obedience prepares us to receive and enjoy what God has planned for us. So this section starts with a word of warning. Let's begin with verse 1 of chapter 3. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. So the warning involves the head and the heart. Notice that. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my, my commands. It involves, again, the head and the heart. You see, it's not enough to have God's word in our heads. And I think in mind, because it doesn't hold things very well anymore. And we have a tendency to forget. We have to also have God's word in our hearts. Like the psalmist said in Psalm 119.11, he says, Your word I have hidden in my heart. It's not enough and it's dangerous to just store God's word in our heads. Because we're shameful for forgetting and for our memories failing us when we need it the most. And I think that's why the Lord said when we take communion to do this in remembrance of me. As often as you do this, to do it in remembrance of me. Because he knows how forgetful we are. And that's why he constantly warns us not to forget. Matthew 13, 22, Jesus said, God's word is quickly crowded out by the worries of this life and the pleasures of wealth, so no fruit is produced. Deuteronomy 8 and 11, God said, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. Deuteronomy 8, 12 through 14, Don't let the good life cause you to forget about me. When you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and you dwell in them and where your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And he's saying, you know, when you're having the good life, when you're prospering, when everything is going well, it's a warning because that's when we tend to forget him. Or, or, you know, we, it, things are going so well, you know, I, I, I really haven't had a need to, to, to call on the Lord. Deuteronomy eight nineteen. Then it shall be if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. Now, these are just a few of the warnings about not forgetting God in the scriptures. There are many. But if we hide God's word in our hearts, it will stay there. And it will control how we handle the changes and the trials and the temptations of life. 
That's why Paul said in Colossians 3.16 to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And the word dwell, it means more than just living in. It means to have a deep down relationship. You are to have a deep down relationship with Christ. He's to dwell in you richly, abundantly. The word has a lot to do with how we behave, how we conduct ourselves. And if you ignore the word of God or you de-emphasize it, it's not as important in your life as it should be, you will have trouble doing what a Christian should do. The word, to, the word is to indwell the believer, the word indwell, or abide in the believer. He's to know the word of God. He's to be acquainted with the word of God. And the abiding must be abundant. Not a few scriptures here and there that, that we memorize that are real popular. Jesus said in John 15, 4, abide in me. Now, the word abide means to stay or to continue or to remain in a place or or, or thing. To remain, to continue, or to stay. So he says, abide in me and I in you. Continue in me. Stay with me and I in you. He says, because the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides, continues in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide or continue in me. This, this is not a hit-or-miss relationship. It's a continuing relationship. The believer should be filled with the Word of God. And in order for you to be filled with the Word of God, it's going to require a lot of attention to the Word of God. Not just a few minutes here and there when I have time. I need to make time. Not just a few minutes in, a, in, a, in the day to, to have a quick five-minute devotional reading. Now, it was hard for the Old Testament Jews to forget God's word. Because, you see, it, it, they were required by law to write scripture verses on the doorposts of their house. And I forgot what those things are called. They're, they're, and I saw them in Jerusalem, went to visit. They're little, you can get them in different sizes, but these little, like, containers that you, that you could, you know, if you bought we took them, and you would screw it onto the, the, the doorpost, the lintel of your house, and you took it, screwed the top, and you could put scriptures in it. And that's what the, the Old Testament Jews would do. They were required to write scripture verses on the doorposts of their house. So when they left the house, those verses would kind of call out to him when they left. Hey, where are you going? Who are you going to be with? What are you going to do? You know, watch your behavior. Watch what you say. Watch out for your character. Remember, God never sleeps. And then when you got back home... Those same verses on his doorpost gave him the third degree regarding his whereabouts. Hey, where did you go? Who, what were you doing? Who were you doing it with? Examine yourself. You can't get away from God. And you know what? That's what the Word of God does. You know, when it's in your heart, it convicts you about where you're going, what you're doing, who you're doing it with. You can't get away from God when the scriptures are embedded in your heart. But even though we've memorized Bible verses, we can still forget them. Or we can forget where they are in the Bible. Because the cares of this life, the hustle and bustle of life, peer pressure, work, temptations and other distractions, all those things put together can crowd out God's word from our minds. But when God's word is embedded in our hearts, dwelling in our hearts, It will always be front and center. Then the word of God gives us a promise. Look at verse 2. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. 
The promise of the long life attached to this verse. Now, it's a general rule. It's not like a guarantee. It's a general rule. It's not a for sure thing. But young people who honor their parents, they grow up to honor the law. And people in authority, like their teachers or, or, or police, bus drivers. You know, when they go to school, and I remember as a little boy on that school bus, oh man, the things that used to go on on that bus. Poor driver was telling them to sit down, be quiet, and behave themselves. You know, plus they're more likely to honor God and respond in a positive way when God's word is made known to them. So as a result, they avoid many of life's traps and temptations and dangers. They have a much better chance of living a longer life than those who grow up being disrespectful to parents and hating authority and not knowing about life's tough rules. We read in 2 Timothy 3, 2, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. For example, those who don't know what God's Word says about sexual purity and become promiscuous might expose themselves to terrible and deadly diseases. On the sensible side, people who don't smoke or drink or do drugs or engage in promiscuous sex, they are more likely to live longer and healthier than those who do. You know, we know even insurance companies, they'll give you a better rate on, a, on car and health insurance you know, if you don't smoke or drink. Third, the Word of God makes a request in verse 3. Notice, let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them, here's the request, bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. The devoted Jews would wear these things, we mentioned them this, this morning, uh, called phylacteries. There were these small square leather cases that tied around their forehead, the phylactery would be in front, or on their forearms. And in this little case would be four passages of Scripture that were written on parchment in the following order. Exodus 13, 1 through 10. Exodus uh, 13, 11 through 16. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 22. Those things would be in those, those, those phylacteries uh, that, that they might be thought more holy. And so again, that they might be thought more holy, strict, and zealous for the law than others. And that's what Jesus was warning his disciples about this morning. Remember, be, for, be warned about the, the scribes and the Pharisees. They wear these phylacteries with all these scriptures in them and, and looking to be really holy and zealous for the law. But the phylacteries, as they're worn by the Pharisees, made Jesus very angry. Because those phylacteries, even though they had the scriptures in them, they became just an empty symbol. They just looked good. They were just words on piece of, a piece of paper with no application in the religious leader's life. Being seen all around town with these phylacteries tied to their foreheads, it didn't make them holy. And that's not what Moses meant when he said in Deuteronomy eleven eighteen to lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. We are to write them on the tablet of our heart. Because it's better to have them in your heart than just memorized. Again, it's, it's easy enough to forget God's word. Uh, I'm sorry, it's easy enough to get God's word into our heads because it only involves a learning process, repetition. But to get God's word into our hearts, it's a lot harder because it involves 
a work of love, a labor of love, digging into the scriptures. Like David said, he considered the, the word of God to be a treasure. And you know, when you think of a treasure, you know, you think of a treasure hunt, you think of going and looking for it and digging where you find it. And there's a little labor involved, but it's a labor of love. I search the scriptures because I love God. I love his word and I want to hear what he has to say. I want to learn. It involves a labor of love. God always goes after the heart. Matthew 20, Matthew 12, verse 30. Jesus, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Notice, he didn't say with all of your head, with all of your heart. Psalm 28, 7, the psalmist said, my heart, notice, my heart trusted in him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. Psalm 37, 32, the law, of, the law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O God, and your law is within my heart. 1 Samuel 16, for the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And you know, as I've studied this and read upon this, it's when God's word is in our heart, when God is in our heart, that's when we truly experience God. You know, the psalm that my heart trusted in him, and that's why I got help. And that's why my heart greatly rejoiced. Who's the Lord to, near to? Those who have a broken heart, not who just casually say, oh, well, you know, I messed up. And No, I really grieve. I really have a broken heart. That's who the Lord is near to. Why did David love to, to do the will of God? His, his, you know, the, the word of God was within his heart. I delight to do your will. Why? Because, oh, I have the law of God in my Who is it that, that doesn't backslide? The law of God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. It's a heart thing with God. When the mind is involved in something, the move, motive behind it is I ought to. When the will is involved in something, the motive is, I have to. But when the heart is involved, the motive is, I want to. Boy, that makes a huge difference. We have to involve our hearts when it comes to our relationship to God's Word. It doesn't come to the lazy. It comes to those who dig for it, who look for the minefield, the nuggets that are there. When, 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 it's, when it's a heart thing, then we won't just hear the word of God, we'll also heed it. Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It's not enough to hear the word of God because we're supposed to keep it. Then in verse four, the word of God has an announcement. Look at verse four. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. There's an announcement about the results of hiding God's word in our hearts. What is more satisfying, you know, than to live down criticism by consistent godliness? In other words, you know, if people badmouth you for whatever reason, you know, they, they're, they're slandering you or, or, you know, making a uh, false accusation. There's no better joy, no better satisfaction than to just live a life of Christ. And it just, sh it just shoots down their lies and their slander. 
What's more acceptable to God and more edifying to the church? It's finding favor with God and people. Gaining a good reputation as the result. You see, the scripture connects the favor of God with the favor of man. If you're, gonna, if you're right with God, you'll be right with man. It's, 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 it's often the fruit of, of one or the It's often the fruit of each other. Jesus is the perfect example, which is always the case. He always is. Jesus grew in favor with God and man. Verses 5 and 6. <clears throat> Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. This is probably <clears throat> another one of the most quoted verses in the Bible when it comes to getting wisdom and direction from, uh, from God. We are not to lean <clears throat> on our own understanding. You know, and when people say, oh, God is a crutch, you bet He is. It says right here, I'm not to lean on my own understanding. I'm meant to lean on God. The Father now established here in the, in the Scriptures, the Father now has established His Son now in, in a personal relationship with the Lord by connecting Him to His teaching. You know, listen to the words of your Father in the relationship with God. And since the Son has committed Himself now to what the Father has taught, the Father now orders the Son, after what He's been taught, to, again, to trust in the Lord to sustain Him. He's been taught the Word of God. He's been taught about a relationship with God. Now he has to have this relationship with God to sustain what he's been taught. And the son's confidence now isn't in, in, an, in an impersonal, you know, created order of things. In other words, the son's confidence isn't in, in just this order or, or ritual of things to do. All right? It, it is now to be, you know... Uh, uh, his life is now to be uh, involved in the, with the covenant-keeping God who stands behind this moral order and this heritage and the promises of God. Trust is the key word here. Trust. Our God is totally dependable because of who He is. His character is what makes it possible for, uh, impossible for him to lie. God, God cannot lie. His wisdom is so great that he can't ever make a mistake. Our God can be trusted. God has high and holy purposes. He has no, you know, underhanded motive. His love is always balanced by his total holiness. God will never let us go. He'll never let us down. He'll never let us off so we can trust Him. We have to trust Him. We have to trust Him with our whole heart. Anything less would be an insult. To say, ah, I just trust God half-heartedly. It's an insult to God. A divided heart and a double mind are almost as bad as no trust at all. But thank God He is patient. And you know what? He will start a relationship with us even if we have a weak faith. But He demands total commitment. And He expects us to trust Him even in the darkest of times and He expects us to grow out of that, to grow in trust through our dark times. And He, like I said, he expects our trust to grow. And if we're not to lean on our own understanding, then whose understanding can we and do we lean on? Well, God's. 
All through the Old Testament, we find that God set up structures, principles, where those in authority made decisions. God has always set principles, all right? He's always set principles through which we are to seek Him in all our decisions, that He might truly make our decision. Remember in the Old Testament, the priests would make decisions based on which way the Urim Urim and Thummim fell inside the breastplate? Also, they would make decisions based on casting lots. This was another way of allowing a decision to be left to God. The psalmist said in 16, uh, Proverbs sixteen thirty three, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Another way of making a decision was through the agreement of two or three people. No one could be found guilty of any crime without the witness of two or three people. So these were biblical ways of confirming a matter. Still, another way of making a decision is through a multitude of counselors. There's safety in a multitude of counselors. So given all of these circumstances, all of these examples, what are we to learn from these examples? We are told in Jeremiah 79, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's why we need to go to God. He will tell us the truth. What really protects each of us from being delivered by our own heart? It's a combination of all of those things above, the casting of lots, the ermine through. I mean, in other words, it's experiencing God. It's going to God. It's trusting in Him. When we get to the place with God that our decisions are accountable to others, like, you know, when we make decisions, and especially, I say, as husbands, that affect our wife and our children, or maybe decisions that, they, that when we're on a board or, or they may affect some friends, who are committed to the same godly ideals, this is when we're protected from deceit of our own heart. How many times when a person wants to get married, there's someone, a close friend or a family member that says, you know what? I don't think you should marry this person. Because they see something in this person that's not right for them. And God warns not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And unfortunately, it happens a lot. But you see, the person that wants to get married, they're more interested in what might be than what really is. Oh, well, you know, they're so close to being saved. Oh, they really like going to church. They really like Bible study. And I've dealt with this. They get married and six months later, here she comes. And usually she's falling for a guy that you know, says, oh yeah, you know, I, I know I'm going to go to church with you and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get saved and, and all of the promises. And then here she goes, he doesn't want to come to church anymore. He says, I spend too much time at church. And she's heartbroken and she's miserable. You know, and they want, they want you to fix it. I said, God said, don't do it. But you felt you knew better. This is why God said don't do it. One of the hardest things to do is to yield to God when you want to do something. To give up your right, to deny yourself, which God says if you're going to follow me, deny yourself. To deny yourself when it comes to making our own decisions. And yet, this is the most basic principle that God requires of us if we're going to receive His blessings in life. We can't disobey God and expect to be blessed. 
there's accountability with relationships. But you know, though, accountability in relationships has become lost in our culture because everybody wants to be independent. People too many times experience the hardship that comes from making decisions that God wasn't in. God wasn't behind it. Walking in obedience is the only real freedom in Christ. When we let God's laws rule in our hearts, then our priorities are determined and our paths are directed by God. And the Lord is very, very worthy of our trust. When we let God's laws rule in our hearts, our paths are directed at times of crisis and in ordinary decisions. Verse 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. When we trust the Lord, He will take care of every area of our life. This part of Proverbs gives us some good advice about the, the material aspects. But first, there's a request, like I said in verse 7. It says, do not be wise in your eyes, fear from the Lord, and depart from evil. And by following this request, it will send you on your way to good health. Look at verse 8. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. And I think it will really improve your health when you trust in the Lord. I mean, it's so great to rest in Him rather than in yourself. Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body and what you will put on. You know, Jesus, can, can, all, of you, can, can all of your worrying at a single moment to your life? No. Because of all the bad effects of worry Jesus tells us not to worry about those needs that God promises to supply can you imagine how God must feel he says he says hey I promise to supply all of your need according to my riches in glory by Christ Jesus it would be like a, a, a your your child who would worry about am I going to eat today you know, am I going to have a roof over my head tonight? Which, again, is always, you know, something that can happen. But, but just in a normal, you know, way that, that kids every day, you know, you know, they don't come and say, are we going to be able to eat tonight? Or, you know, am I going to have a place to sleep? You know, that would, that would grieve me to know that my child was worried that I couldn't take care of them. I promised to say, you know, you're going to be taken care of. And it must grieve the father when we, we don't trust that he's going to take care. He's not going to supply all our need when he's promised he would. And then Psalm 37, 8, we're warned, do not fret. It only causes harm. You know, worry. Number one, worry can damage your health. Secondly, worry can, you know, worrying can cause what you're worrying about to consume all of your thoughts. I can't think every thought, I can't think about anything about this problem that I have in my life right now. It can consume all of your thoughts. Worrying can disrupt your productivity. I, I just can't function. I can't do what I need to do. Fourth, worry can, can negatively affect the way you treat other people. Don't bother me right now. I just, you know what? I got my own problems. Leave me alone. It happens often. Fifth, worry can reduce your ability to trust in God. How many, you know, ill effects of worry 
might you be experiencing right now? Here's the difference between worry and true concern. Worry puts you out of action, but concern moves you to action. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.19, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. You see, worry, it will get, I mean, trusting in the name of Christ, departing from iniquity, it will get you away from sin. It will get you away from those things that weaken your spiritual life and your physical life. Verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all of your increase, so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. These two verses emphasize, and we kind of saw that this morning with the, the example of the widow and the two mites. These two verses emphasize the importance of honoring God with our possessions. Did you know that giving, giving to God financially is required by God? Not required by the church. I don't think you've ever heard me beg for money and say, hey, you know, we need to, you know, increase the tithes this way. We got some bills to pay. You'll never hear that from me. It's not my requirement. I teach it because of the Bible. But it's up to you and God. I teach you the word of God. From that point on, it's between you and God. None of my business. But giving to God is financially is required by God. And if we don't faithfully give to the Lord, we don't really trust the Lord. Our tithes and our offerings are not a payment, you know, kind of like, Lord, you know, hey, it's, I'm, I'm giving this because it's a, a kind of a payment, uh, you know, for your blessings. <laughs> Instead, what we give to the Lord is our evidence of our faith and our obedience to Him. The Christian industrialist, R.J. Letourneau used to say, if you give because it pays, it won't pay. Abraham, he set the example early in the history of God's people in Genesis 14, 17 through 23. It says, and he gave a tithe of all. This was when, you know, he met Melchizedek. He gave him, that he said, he gave Melchizedek a tithe of all. And you know what? Abraham gave a tithe before the law of tithing was ever given. This is in Genesis 14, 17 through 23. The tithing law wasn't given to Genesis 28, verse 22. But Abraham already set the example. You see, the Lord demands first place in everything. The first fruits belong to God. At the very beginning of the harvest, the people would bring their first fruits to the Lord. Now, if they had a bumper crop they would give to the Lord. If they didn't have a bumper crop, they gave the first to the Lord. Whatever it was, and whatever was left over, that was theirs, and they trusted in God. But you see, until we come to that point, we will never learn about the faithfulness of God, trusting in God. And I know tithing is difficult. I mean, it probably took me 14 years before I tithed all the time. Because, like I shared this one, there's always a need, isn't there? There's always something that's broken down. The car, the appliances, the, you know, something that's going on. Some unexpected thing happens and, oh, Lord, I can't this month, you know, I'll maybe next month. And every time there's something where we, we just, I can't, Lord, I can't. And yet we'll pray, Lord, I, 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 I'm short my, my payment for the house this month. 
Could you please? And yet, we're not giving to God. We want God to be faithful to our prayer to help us out, but we don't want to be obedient in giving to the Lord what belongs to Him. It's, it belongs to Him from the, from the very beginning. The Lord, again, demands first place in everything. And at the very beginning, I said of the harvest, the people would bring their first fruits and give it to the Lord. That was, that was to acknowledge that God was the owner of it all. It was a symbol of their commitment to Him. You know, we cannot say that we are totally committed to the Lord until our finances are committed to Him as well. If we're not giving of our finances to the Lord, we're not committed to Him. It's the Lord who gave you and me everything. Now, some people say, hey, I have worked hard to earn my money. I earned it. Okay, yes. But who gave you the health to go to work? Who gave you the work that you're doing? Who gave you the job? Who makes it possible for you to get to work? Who makes it possible to make the money that you earn? God did all that for you. So we need to acknowledge Him. That is the proof of our total commitment to Him. Deuteronomy 8, 17 says, You say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. He says, And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth. This is a really favorite scripture of the health, wealth, and prosperity people. And they'll will use this to see. You said, you, 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 you go out there and you earn that money and you make it and you're the one who does it. Because they, use, they only take that first part. My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And that's usually the way the, the, those guys are. They, they use the verse that, that, that you know, uh, that, that makes them uh, say what they want to, the other people want to hear. Or their prosperity doctrine. But then God says, this is what you say. But he says, you remember me. Because it is me, it is I who have given you the power to get wealth. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. If God gives you the blessing, be, that's great, that's fine. But just remember, God says, I'm the one who enabled you to get wealth. Now, when you preach something like somebody will always say, man, it sounds like the church is money hungry. No, this is real spirituality. Now, it's in the scriptures. Real spirituality isn't how long you pray. It's how much you give to the Lord on Sunday. That's the way you determine spirituality. We saw that with the widow's mite this morning when Jesus said it. She gave more than everybody else. Though she gave less physically, spiritually, and from her heart, she gave more than those that gave a lot more. You see, God promises his blessing to those who honor him with their possessions. But we can never expect him to bless our financial problems, our financial affairs, if we leave you know, him out completely of what we're to give to him. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Notice, not grudgingly or of necessity. Not, oh, well, here it is, Lord. Or, or you know what, I have to give, so here it is. He says, for God loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful means hilarious. A cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you always having all sufficiency in all things. Giving to God financially 
isn't just required by God, it's also rewarded by God. Then there's a warning in Luke 12, 15. Jesus said, take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. We are to bless the Lord with what we possess because he's given it to us. Verse 11 through 12, the, the scripture here, there's a, a, the word teaches regarding our trials. Look at verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the chasing of the Lord nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Correction is an important part of discipline. And discipline means to teach and to train. Discipline sounds negative to a lot of people because some disciplinarians, they're not loving and they can be very abusive. But God is the source of all love. He doesn't discipline us because he enjoys inflicting pain upon us. It's because he's deeply concerned about our growth and our spirituality and our maturity. God knows that in order to become morally strong and good, we have to learn the difference between right and wrong. And that's what his his loving discipline does. It enables us to do that. David quickly recognized the Lord's chastening hand in the calamity that took him by surprise when his son Absalom rebelled and stole the kingdom from him. During David's quick escape from Jerusalem, when Absalom was coming and taking over, David, on his way to Behurim, leaving Jerusalem, he was met by this guy named Shammai. And he was one of, you know, Saul's supporters. Shammai didn't like David. He cursed David and said that he stole, he was a bloodthirsty man, he was a rogue, and that he stole the kingdom from Absalom. When it was, or, or, and it was the other way around. And as David was leaving uh, um, Jerusalem on his way to Behurim, Shammai was making all these accusations and he was throwing rocks at David and he was cursing at David. And David's, David's nephew, Abishai, finally said, Hey, David, let me go cut off this guy's head. But David said, No, leave him be. Leave him alone. And here's why. He said, Let him curse. Because the Lord has ordered him. Notice how David just said, Hey, this is of the Lord. He just trusted in God. He said, it may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for this, for his cursing this day. And then later on, Shammai, you know, when when David got back the kingdom and God restored him. Later on, Shammai went crawling to David out of fear, asking for forgiveness. And once again, Abishai said, hey, David, let me cut off his head. Abishai just not like this guy. And once again, David said, no, leave him alone. You see, David was too well aware of his own sin and chastisement to want to take vengeance on another sinner. David didn't despise the Lord's chastening. He submitted to it and he learned from it. And that is what we are to do. You know, you can, you can fight against discipline and, and what God is trying to do. And, and you know, it just makes it all the harder. You know, we are, when we are going through difficult times, and it, again, it may be God's discipline, God's, God's chastisement, we, we need to ask God, Lord, teach me, help me to be a student. Help me to learn from this rather than become a victim and become angry and bitter. Help me to learn, God, what it is you're trying to teach me. 
we also see that what the, what the Lord's chastening proves. That we are a child of God. God is going to chasten you and me as, as we go through life, and he's going to do it as his child. And remember, God doesn't spank the devil's children. He doesn't discipline the devil's children, but he spanks his own. And that's good proof that we belong to him. So in closing, Job 5, 17 and 18 says, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chasing of the Almighty, for he, no, he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but his, his hands make whole. Pain helps us to grow. You know, we are to grow through what we go through. We are to grow through what we go through. So what does all of this mean? It means that the Lord, in his infinite love for you, is determined to do all that he can to save us. All the thoughts of God's hearts are for your good and not evil. Every use of his power is focused on his purpose for your life. And that our lives are in his hands to give us a future and a hope. Father, again, we thank you for your wonderful word. We thank you, God, for the beautiful lessons that we find in your scriptures, God. But again, Lord, they must go past the brain into the heart. And they say the distance between the, the, the brain and the heart is about 18 inches So it's only, it's about 18 inches that keeps us away from you, Lord. May the word of God, as we receive it into our heads, be passed into our hearts where it may dwell. May it would dwell abundantly, God. Lord, may we live and breathe and share the beauty of your word, the salvation of your word, the power of your word, God, the truth of your word. Your word is power, God. It's freedom. And may the Holy Spirit encourage us, may he make us bold and courageous that we not hide from difficulty, that we not hide from enemy, the enemies of Christ. But we tell them confidently that our God is almighty and that people need him. And apart from him, they're lost and without hope. Lord, bless your people as they leave and protect them and watch over them. Be with them throughout the week, God. And Lord, we pray that we'll all meet back here on Wednesday, God. To have more time with you, Lord. To worship you. To hear your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.